When you think of aviators in World War II, maybe you think of sleek planes and guns flying about during the day. But these women, the night witches, that were in charge of running stealth missions at night were a force to be reckoned with. Not only were they crucial to the war effort, but absolutely legendary with their skill. Making it all the more impressive was the fact that their planes were quite literally falling apart. So hello and welcome to another episode of Prism of the Past. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about the Night Witches. The Night Witches were an all-women group of female aviators that bombed Nazi forces during World War II. Now, before I do get into this, I do wanna make it clear that I'm not celebrating Stalin's regime or anything simply because he allowed the 588th Regiment, known as the Night Witches, to be formed. Both Stalin and Hitler were murderous, brutal dictators, and I'm sure we can all at least agree on that. This episode is just going to give some credit to the absolutely badass young women that triumph over adversity to attack Nazis. So with that out of the way, let's get into who these women were and how the Night Witches were formed. It all began with Marina Raskova. Marina was born in 1912 in Russia to a middle-class family. She originally had aspirations to become a musician, but abandoned that to study chemistry as well. She met her husband, Sergei, while working in a dye factory, and they married while they were still quite young. At the age of 17, Maria changed careers again to join the aerodynamic navigation lab of the Soviet Air Force. And at the age of 19, she became the first navigator in the Air Force and at 20 became the first woman to teach at the Air Academy. A few years later, Marina divorced her husband to focus on her flying career. According to one source, she became a famous pilot as well as a navigator setting a number of long distance records. This included the famous flight of the Rodina covering 6,000 kilometers from Moscow to Komsomolsk. However, the flight ran into difficulties at the end of its 26 and a half hour journey when poor visibility hampered the landing. As the navigator's pit was vulnerable in crash landings, Raskova bailed out with a parachute while the two pilots completed the landing. She survived with no water and almost no food for 10 days before she found her way to the landing site and reunited with her team. Maria undoubtedly proved that she was a capable pilot regardless of gender. Yet that didn't seem to change the Soviet Union's mind either. Years later, with the outbreak of World War II, the country was in need of pilots. Despite many women applying, many found their applications were denied or mysteriously delayed. It's not as if there were any formal restrictions on Soviet women in the military at that time either, and many women did serve in World War II at the time. According to the Washington Post article titled, The Significant Neglected Role of Russian Women in World War II, Many admired Stalin and believed in Soviet power. The frontline girls were full of fervor, fitted by their neighbors eager to defend the motherland. One danced while waiting for her troop train. Nobody ever thinks a war will be long, but there were other reasons. We were starving, recalled a lathe operator who became a submachine gun platoon commander. She yearned for the front because there would be rations there, rusks and tea with sugar. The girls were unbelievably young. One enlisted after the seventh grade. A sapper contracted a fever and realized that her wisdom teeth were coming in. Both women and girls were fighting and volunteering. One, like Maria Oktabriskia, sold all her possessions to donate towards acquiring a tank for the war effort. 
She named the tank Fighting Girlfriend and received a personal allowance from Stalin to become its driver mechanic, the first woman in the world to do so. The first woman decorated as a hero of the Soviet Union was Zoya Kosmodemyenskaya, who acted as a saboteur. She was caught, tortured, and hanged on November 1st, 1941, when she was only 18 years old. So then, if other women and girls were fighting on the front lines, why couldn't they take the fight to the skies as well? At least that's what Marina seemed to think. Given her celebrity status as a pilot, when she spoke to Joseph Stalin, he listened. It's said that many of the women that had been turned away had actually sent Marina letters instead, telling her how they wanted to be pilots too. And Marina showed these letters to Stalin. So following a speech in September, 1941, calling for women pilots to be welcomed into the war, Stalin ordered the creation of three new air regiments, the 586th Fighter Air Regiment, the 125th Guards Bomber Regiment, and the 46th Taman Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment. As far as I can tell, the latter were originally known as the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, but later became known as the 46th Taman Guards Night Bomber Regiment. Either way, this particular regiment would later become known as the Night Witches. The 125th Guards Bomber Regiment was also originally known as the 587th Bomber Regiment before their name was later changed too. So you had 586, 587, and 588 regiments with Marina as the colonel for all of them. However, though Marina was the reason they were created, she personally took control of the 125th Bomber Regiment. It's said that she eventually obtained the very best equipment available for the regiment, even causing some resentment among male units, but we'll get to that in just a moment. As for who led the Night Witches, that honor went to Yevodokia Bershenskia. More than 2000 women applied to be part of these units and about 400 were chosen for each. Many were students between the ages of 17 to 26. Those that were chosen would move to Engels, a small town north of Stalingrad to begin their training at the Engels School of Aviation. Their journey had only begun. The training to become a night witch was incredibly difficult. Considering that they were in a war and time was precious, these young women were expected to learn in a few months what took most soldiers several years to grasp. And since they were in an all-female unit, that meant the ground crew, navigators, and maintenance of all the planes was up to these women as well. As for the planes themselves, my sources disagree a bit about the quality of the planes these women were made to fly, according to the Museum of Flight. During their year of training, the women aviators were sorted by ability levels to form the three all-female regiments, the 586th Fighter Aviation Regiment, the 587 Bomber Aviation Regiment, and the 588 Night Bomber Aviation Regiment. The most skilled aviators became fighter pilots and to the ire of their male counterparts were issued brand new Yakovlev Yak-1s. The middle tier pilots were assigned to the bomber regiment and the lowest scoring pilots were assigned to the night fly bombers and were issued a plane that no one else wanted to fly. The Polikarpov Po-2, a 1928 trainer constructed from wood and canvas with no heat, an open cockpit and a 100 horsepower engine. The plane was outfitted with three bombs under each wing. However, other sources such as the Flight Journal say that the Night Witches or the 588th Regiment had old noisy planes and the engines would die halfway through their missions, often meaning someone had to climb out onto the wings mid-flight to restart them. Others claim that the planes were rickety, loud, slow, and easily caught fire. As far as I can tell, even if some flyers were given modern planes, many of those in the 588th Regiment weren't. The Wright Museum states, 
The 588th were given out-of-date Polycarpov Puyo II biplanes that were primarily used as crop dusters and training planes. The pilot sat up front and the navigator, who was also the bombardier, sat in the rear. The plane was like a death trap waiting to spring. Some night witches likened the rickety PO2 to a coffin with wings because the plane was made of plywood with canvas stretched over it. If a tracer bullet struck the plane, it could easily burst into flames. The plane's top speed was 90 miles an hour and could carry only two bombs, one under each wing. The weight of the bombs and crew forced the plane to travel low, which allowed it to be spotted easily by the enemy. Because of those handicaps, the planes could only fly at night under the cover of darkness. There were a few advantages to those PO2 planes with being more lightweight, they were more maneuverable and being made out of wood and canvas, the plane didn't show up on German radars or infrared indicators. Both of these would be an incredible boon to the night witches later, as well as the fact that the biplanes could take off and land from almost anywhere. Of course, there were plenty of disadvantages as well. Since the planes flew so close to the ground and because it would only add extra weight, the night witches carried no parachutes. They also had no modern instruments. They relied on maps, compasses, stopwatches, pencils, and flashlights to find their way. Since the cockpits were open, the pilot and navigator were exposed to rain, freezing wind, and they could get frostbite in cold weather. The Wright Museum states, in extremely cold weather, they could get frostbite. If they put their bare hand on the fuselage, the flesh might come off when they pulled their hand away. The night witches also carried pistols to use if they crashed, but would save the last bullet for themselves so they wouldn't be captured alive. Not to mention, because the Soviet Air Force had no females up until then, the women were given old men's uniforms. The clothes were often too large and baggy, and the boots were sometimes so oversized that the women tore up their bedding and stuffed it into their boots to make them fit better. Some also cut their hair short to appear like men, but painted flowers on their planes and used navigation pencils to color their lips to add a feminine touch to the war. Officially, the women were treated just like their male counterparts, except they were given more soap. Needless to say, these women were absolutely roughing it, but they were ready to do so. Irina Rakoboskaya interviewed in 2014 for an NBC segment, where she was one of the first accepted into the Night Witch's ranks. She'd been a physics student and soon became their chief of staff. We went to war knowing this is war, she says simply. If you jabbed your finger hard enough at the wing of these fragile planes they'd been given, you could make a hole in it. Its top speed was not even 100 miles per hour, while German planes could reach speeds of 400. One girl managed to fly seven times to the front line and back again. She would return shaking, then she'd go off to bomb the target again. That's how it worked. Can you imagine, Irina asks. Despite the numerous disadvantages, especially with the planes themselves, they made the most of it. In addition to all the challenges, male pilots tended to view them as inferior, hence why they weren't given radios or machine guns. It took a long time for the men to learn to respect them, but because of their high performance, the night witches did earn it and then some. Some sources explain that the women even faced sexual harassment from their male counterparts and that, quote, the men didn't like the little girls going onto the front line. It was a man's thing, end quote. But the night witches didn't yield to anyone they reportedly had 12 rules or commandments that they followed. And the first was to be proud to be a woman. Though their job was flying planes, the young women still enjoyed dancing, decorating their planes, needlework, and patchwork. Who says a woman can't paint a flower on a plane that also takes down Nazis, right? As for their tactics, well, that's what they're most known for. The Germans reportedly had some hilarious theories about the night witches. One was that they were all criminals who were masters at stealing and had been sent to the front line as punishment. Another is that they had been given special injections that allowed them to see at night. 
Apparently the German forces simply did not want to accept that they were being beaten by, in some cases, by teenage girls. One source explains, in order to make meaningful dents in the German front lines, the regiment sent out up to 40 two-person crews at night. Each would execute between eight and 18 missions a night, flying back to rearm between runs. The weight of the bombs forced them to fly at lower altitudes, making them a much easier target, hence their night-only missions. The planes, each with a pilot up front and navigator in the back, traveled in packs. The first planes would go in as bait, attracting German spotlights, which provided much needed illumination. These planes, which rarely had ammunition to defend themselves, would release a flare to light up the intended target. The last plane would idle its engines and glide in darkness to the bombing area. It was this stealth mode that created their signature witch's broom sound. After all, their planes were noisy, so their best bet was on simply cutting the engine. They were never picked up on by radio locators because they weren't given any advanced equipment, having been treated as lesser. Thanks to this, they became basically ghosts and almost impossible to stop. The Germans called them Nahexen and initially dismissed their planes as sewing machines because of their relative lack of sound compared to the 1100 horsepower fighters. These sorties or sudden issuing of troops were, as I'm sure you can imagine, incredibly dangerous. After all, they had flammable planes, no parachutes and little experience. Yet the discrimination and skepticism that women faced made them want to prove themselves all the more. They developed these incredible risky tactics and effectively turned the Nazis into zombies. The women would sleep during the day, went to their makeshift runway before nightfall and took off in pitch darkness. They dropped bombs, then headed back to the runway that was cleared that very day, lit with torches, which just flew multiple sorties a night. Sometimes they said they would fly up to 16 in a night. Sometimes if the bomb was stuck due to the cold and wouldn't detach, a co-pilot would have to crawl onto the wing mid-flight and tap the bomb with a wrench until it detached. One source states that, they'd drop two bombs, return to their temporary base, refuel and take on two more bombs, then fly off on another sortie. Each sortie lasted between 30 to 50 minutes. Sometimes the night witches would return with planes riddled with bullet holes. I find it fascinating and amazing how these women could take a challenge and turn it into an advantage. I'm not so sure I would have been able to do this and handle the pressure, let alone at such a young age. And I really, really doubt it. I'm a scaredy cat. Between the lack of sleep, the knowledge that they were being beaten by young women and the struggle to even spot the planes in the first place, the night witches took a massive psychological toll on the Nazi forces. There can be no understanding their incredible effect in the war. From June, 1942 to October, 1945, the unit flew approximately 23,672 combat sorties, collectively logged 28,678 flight hours and dropped over 3,000 tons of bombs and 26,000 incendiary shells. They damaged or destroyed 17 river crossings, nine railways, two railway stations, 26 warehouses, 12 fuel depots, 176 armored cars. 86 prepared firing positions and 11 searchlights. Plus they also made 155 supply drops of food and ammunition to Soviet forces. However, now that we've talked about how the night witches earned their name, even in the face of adversity, let's get into how they earned their other name, the 46 Tame and Guards Night Bomber Aviation Regiment and what the other female regiments were up to. One paper written by Yasmin L. Vaughn at James Madison University explains that most of the 588th Regiment activity was near or around the Caucasus Mountains, which the Germans aimed to control because of its vast oil reserves and other raw materials. 
The Night Witches began performing shorties in the Taman Peninsula and the Transcaucasus until December, 1942. Because of their incredible victories in Taman, they earned the name the 46th Taman Guards Night Bomber Regiment. Of course, the other regiments were doing incredibly well too. The 586th became known as Stalin's Falcons, and though they received little recognition for their efforts, the 586th included some of the best pilots that the Soviets had to offer. It's a shame that it took so much for the women in these regiments to prove themselves. And even when they did, they weren't always recognized for their efforts. The women of the 586th were not only qualified and capable, but those that were deemed to be top performers by Marina Raskova herself. Yet they too faced discrimination. Apparently, when they went to pick up their Yak-1 fighter planes at the factory, the factory staff were outraged that a bunch of girls didn't want to wait their turn for planes that male pilots had been waiting for for some time. Once they actually met the women, however, the staff took back their words. Unlike the Night Witch's planes, all of these Yak-1 planes had radios, though they were receive radios only. The squadron could send messages out to the radios, but the other planes would not be able to communicate back or send messages. Rather than tolerate this, Raskova was able to get the send and receive radios for all the planes. The 586th was in charge of two missions, escorting important people and combat. Combat represented around 93% of all of their duties. Eventually the 586 lost pilots in combat and because of the scarcity of trained women pilots, an all male squadron was added to the 586th and they became a mixed group. Not a single woman from the 586th ever received a hero of the Soviet Union award, though several did receive other awards. So now that we know who the Night Witches and Stalin's Falcons are, let's move on with our last of the three regiments, 587. One of the reasons why I bring them up in this order is because the Night Witches are the most well-known and because the 587th had to enter the war months after their sister regiments because they trained on slow old Sukhoi Su-2 bombers. Marina Raskova, who formed the three regiments to begin with, became their leader. Using her connections, she was eventually able to replace the decrepit Su-2 bombers with P-2 dive bombers. The new planes didn't arrive until July, 1942, so they had to retrain with the new planes. Though there were a few issues the 587th faced early on, one is that since the cockpits were larger, some of these young women literally could not reach the control panels, so they needed pillows stacked behind them. Plus, since the Su-2 bombers only needed two people and the P-2s needed three, they needed to add male pilots to their squadron. 587, like 586, became mixed with both men and women in their ranks. However, that wasn't the worst of it. On one of their first assignments in Stalingrad, December, 1942, their fearless leader, Marina Raskova, crashed during an intense snowstorm. Major Valentin Markov replaced Raskova. The women were irate that their new leader was a male and secretly nicknamed him Bayonet. Markov, an experienced bomber combat pilot, wasn't sure about his assignment either. Combat operations changed both points of view. Markov recognized the women's competence and adjusted his leadership style to better guide them. He also led them to their bombing objectives by taking routes that avoided the Germans spotting them, which decreased casualties. The women in turn recognized his experience, competence, and flexibility by acting as professionals and changed his secret nickname from Bayonet to Batya, dad. The 587th began flying combat missions in January, 1943. They flew 1,134 missions, not just inside Soviet Union at Stalingrad, but the Don Front and Belarus, but also in Lithuania and Poland, and dropped a total of 980 tons of bombs on German positions, batteries, ammunition dumps, and transportation lines. 
The 587th earned such a great reputation that they were awarded the coveted guards designation and afterwards became known as the 125th Guard Bomber Aviation Regiment. By war's end, 22 pilots and crew members had died defending their country. As for the Night Witches, that number was just over 30. In the years following the war, Markov has stated that he wished he recommended even more women to receive the Hero of the Soviet Union Awards. Instead, the most acclaim went to the Night Witches as 22 of the 89 women had received the HSU award during their service in World War II. 200,000 women were awarded medals for bravery throughout and after the war, and it's estimated that around half a million women served alongside men. Some were excellent snipers, some operated anti-aircraft artillery, and as we mentioned earlier, they were even tank commanders. Yet the women that served, including the Night Witches, have almost faded from memory. And before we get into modern day recognition with the Night Witches, let's just take a quick moment to thank today's sponsor. Hey, so it's me just promoing some me stuff today. Uh, If you wanna connect with me live as we discuss some more current event topics or even some more laid back stuff, make sure that you check out my Twitch. I've started to stream more regularly over there. And although I admit I'm still kind of figuring out a consistent schedule, but I am trying to go live at least one to three times a week. So if you wanna join in on the discussion, make sure you go to my Twitch. It's called The Illuminati with a the at the beginning because I locked myself out of my first account. So yeah, here we are. Or of course you can click on the link in the description box. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun over there and I hope to see you there in a future stream soon. On May 4th, 1945, the Night Witches flew within 60 kilometers of Berlin. Three days later, Germany officially surrendered. Some sources say that even though the Night Witches were the most highly decorated unit of the Soviet Air Force, they weren't invited to the Victory Day Parade when the Nazis were defeated. Others say they couldn't participate because their planes flew too slow. Though Raskova, the mother of this movement, was given the first state funeral of World War II, it does largely sound a lot like these women were forgotten. One article from the Smithsonian states that while the war was won with the help of these women, Soviet leadership doesn't want history to be remembered that way. After all, there wasn't a law allowing for women to be formally accepted until 1939, and many women from pilots to snipers to gunners had to earn any respect that they got. One pilot once said that she had, quote, earned the right to conduct lone wolf or freelance operations just like the best male pilots, end quote. Yet even at that level, among the best male pilots, people were still dismissive. They met us with distrust in the division, remembered squadron navigator Galina Olkovskaya. The male pilots could not accept the idea that just like men, some girls had mastered complicated equipment and would be able to complete any sort of combat mission. At times, the male pilots even swooped in on formations by the women pilots, forcing them to scatter. Despite facing harassment and disdain, thousands of women continued enlisting in the military. By the end of the war, estimates for women participants go as high as 800,000, far higher than half a million my other sources have mentioned earlier. While many acted in traditionally feminine roles, nurses, secretaries, and cooks, plenty of others fought on the front lines. The Soviet Union, desperate for manpower, sent more women into combat than any other nation before or since. 
But apart from highlighting the stories of a limited number of women soldiers for propaganda purposes, the Soviet government mostly hid the work women were doing. Soviet authorities did this for multiple reasons. One, because they didn't want to appear weak for recruiting women to their enemies. They also didn't want women to believe that they could have permanent or frontline roles in the military. What stopped the British, Americans, and Germans from following the anti-aircraft to pull the trigger was their sense of gender roles, a sensibility that had not yet adjusted to necessity. Young men furthermore saw military service as a validation of their own virility and a certificate of manhood. If women could do it, then it was not very manly. And obviously this is ridiculous, and the women we've talked about today prove that. You don't have to be a man to be a war hero, a pilot, or receive a Hero of the Soviet Union award. To this day in the Russian military, women face various forms of sexism, such as being encouraged to participate in state-sponsored beauty pageants. However, in massive part, thanks to the New York Times bestselling author, Kate Quinn, the stories of the night witches and these other female pilots are being revived. Quinn's new historical novel, The Huntress, highlights the exploits of the night witches in particular. According to Quinn, she stumbled across the story of the night witches during a late night Google hunt for storylines and she was hooked. It's a story about women of the past who have done some truly amazing things, Quinn said in an interview. What's especially cool about the Night Witches is that all of the allies during World War II, the Russians were the only country who put women in combat officially. And it's a great book. It's a great weekend read if you're into reading an entire book in a whole weekend. I absolutely loved it. And another one I recommend checking out too is called The Dance with Death. If you want to hear more about these women's stories, especially since it is in the women's own words, so you can really identify with them and what they actually went through. It also provides a lot of well-sourced important context, such as discussing the golden age of aviation in the 30s, as well as these women's personal histories and what they went through that led them to fight in these regiments. So hopefully with these books being released, these women will continue to go down in history and not be forgotten again. However, with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure that you're subscribed with your notifications on so that YouTube can always notify you whenever a new episode goes live. Thank you so much for spending some of your time here with me today. I hope you learned something interesting and new because I absolutely enjoyed researching for this episode. It was so fascinating and I really can't get enough of it. But thank you all again for spending some time here with me today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.